When I connected with Tupac, there was this underlying thing that, for lack of a better word, in the first time I connected to him that we had these daddy issues. It wasn't said. You just find your own. You can feel it. And when you look at Tupac, and I'm going to say something that's maybe profane, but the way he died, that was one big daddy issue. The whole run was a daddy issue. I connect to that, searching for that figure, whether it was in Suge or this guy or that guy. He was always searching. Yeah. Even if you think about that final image. That's right. On the strip. Haunting. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. Hey everyone, it's your co-host Minya O, aka Miss Info. Alan Hughes is a movie maker whose resume is loaded with music insight and experience. We loved hearing how Alan went from making home movies on the block to classic films that continue to be referenced in lyrics and videos all day. We also get the scoop on Alan's upcoming biopics, and I get FOMO just hearing about how Alan and Nas actually hang out together in LA's most exclusive music power circle. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Classics like Menace to Society and Dead Presidents are the type of films that hip-hop fans embrace not only because they are great movies, but you feel the connection between what's on the screen and what hip-hop represents. Director Alan Hughes started his career directing music videos for Tupac before making feature films with his brother Albert Hughes. His cinematic vision and dynamic storytelling have kept viewers entranced for decades. And he's got more stories to tell. Have you guys ever met before? Yeah. Nas yeah. and Alan. Probably ran down on you. <laughs> Yo, bro, love you, man. We had a dinner. It was always dinners. He was, I should have used his word, sweetheart in hip-hop, but very sweet. His first album was blowing the fuck up, you know? And someone, his management had said, he wants you guys to do his first music videos. That's right. And I was like, wow. 
I don't know what we were doing. We might have been doing Dead Presidents at the time or something like that. Yeah. And it was such an honor. I hadn't met him yet, though. Right. But that he was like, either Scorsese or these guys. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. It was like really that drastic. <laughs> yeah. I just remember being, because at that time, that album had just shattered the earth. What was your perception of it? So how did it reach you on the West Coast? We keep hearing through a lot of these conversations that we're having when they first heard Illmatic or when they first even heard about Nas. And a lot of it is filtering through Stretch and Bobbito or mm-hmm. sort of this underground buzz. But on the West Coast, how did the buzz get to you? Was I it- think it was a delayed reaction mm-hmm. in my click because of how authentic it was. And at the time, you know, you, you think about the records, not that it, it was completely street, but you think about the obvious street shit that was out on the West Coast at the time. So it was a delayed reaction in my neighborhood. When they're making comparisons already on the first album to Rakim, before you even heard it, and then when you hear it, you go, oh, shit, I see what this is. Wow. You know, I have to admit, we were kind of ignorant hip-hop out here. Does that make sense? Like, it was so... What were you listening to? It was so gang-related. Yeah. (laughs) It was so gangster that we had... I don't want to name names because, but I will name names. It had gotten so far away from like real hip hop and lyricism that it was just about gangbanging. Yeah. And that's what I think changed. He brought it back for us out here. Like, oh, okay. Not Mm. that there weren't artists that were great lyricists or had a flow or whatever. It just said in the West Coast, we were consumed with this gang culture. And that tipped it back. That record. That album, not record. Because I know New Yorkers say record. And we think it means the album, but no, it's the record. <laughs> it's all the same. People started making these distinctions between MCs and rappers. Remember that yeah, 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 ridiculous yeah. debate? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And hey. come on, an MC can be a rapper, a rapper can be an MC. Yeah, Whoa. I guess so, but there's a difference too. I had this debate with Dr. Dre. Okay. Between hip hop and rap. Yes, tell us. And it's funny, he corrected me. First of all, what year did Illmatic come out? 94, 93? 94. 94. Okay, so I was right in that pocket. I said um, to him, that's hip-hop. And I feel like some of that gangster stuff is rap. And he goes, no, 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 no. That stuff is hip-hop, too. He says, MC Hammer, that's rap. So his distinction is pop versus street? Yeah, I think that was his distinction. Because mine was more like authentic. Again, your first album, why it took a while to hit the hoods out here was because it was real hip-hop. I always thought that some of that gangster rap, I'd never considered it hip-hop. Some people will probably hunt me down for that one. It didn't have that type of feel to me. So that's a debate. It's to each his own. I think <laughs> N.W.A. was hip-hop. I agree. How you see it is how you see it and how you break it down. That's right. Did you go into film school? Later, later, my brother went to LACC, which is a community college. And they had a nice little program. And, and he was only in there for a year because we were already so advanced from high school. I had five public access shows in high school. I had my own talk show like Oprah. I had my own In Living Color type show before In Living Color, like sketch Skip? comedy show. Yeah. I used to do stand-up comedy. That's why these were all comedic in nature. Like out in clubs and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was 16, I would lie and say I was 18 and come to the comedy store and do the amateur room and all that, you know. So did you see any legends in there? Richard Pryor. You saw Richard Pryor. He's my favorite. Yeah, before he got really bad, though, you know, with the MS. Yeah. Yeah, but he would be up there when he was able to talk and really still pop some shit. I saw him and Paul Mooney, obviously. Comedy Act Theater, Martin when he wasn't Martin. 
And who was the Bay Bay's kid guy? We Robin Harris. Robin Harris. Robin oh Harris was the headliner. Man. Oh my God. You know, this is like Man. late 80s. That was late 80s, yeah. And then when did you stop? Oh, why? I stopped because my brother went to film school and we got our hands on film for the first time. And I realized while we were doing comedy, outside of I was always a class clown, because video lends itself to comedy. It's not serious. So once we got our hands on film and we were seeing things like Raging Bull, like Oh, black and white, Super 8. Our first films were in black and white. Drama was easier than comedy. Comedy's hard. Mm -hmm. it, the timing, the nuance of it, like dramas, that became an easy thing for us. So mm -hmm. that's how we got there. We had done these two short films when no one knew us. One was called The Drive-By, about a drive-by, in black and white. And it featured Miles Davis music, kind of in the Raging Bull style, with these language shots and this, that, and the other. And another was called Menace to Society, which had nothing to do with the film. By the time we got up to the Bay Area to do our first music video, when I met Tupac, he had seen these two things, and everyone had seen these wow. two things. And people like Nelson George and Tamara Davis and Chris Rock had taken these films to New York. And by the time we came to New York to do Karis One music videos, we were 19, had known our name off of these little cinematic five-minute shorts, you know? Wow. Yeah. You did KRS One's videos. We did two. Yeah, we did two. Which one? We ones? did uh, Duck. Was that what it was called? Rewind. The one with Rewind. Yeah, duck. yeah, yeah, duck, yeah, duck yeah. yeah. And then we did Thirteen and Good. Very oh, visual. Wow. That one's very visual. Wow. Amazing. Did he even call you like guys? Put me in a film. To be frank, at the time he was going through a divorce uh, with Miss Melody, Melody, and he wasn't the nicest artists to collaborate with at the time. You were like, lose our number. <laughs> exactly. Chris was something, it was an eye-opener for us. Now, Ann Carly, she was the one that put us on Too Short. When we started doing Too Short music videos, Karis One was the first thing she put us on. And then we lost out. We really wanted that scenario video, that Tribe Called Quest scenario video. Oh. That broke our hearts so much that we swore the next video we did was going to be the one, and it happened to be Brenda's Got a Baby. Tupac, and we were like going to put everything into this thing because we had lost the scenario video. In hindsight, Crazy. do you believe that the scenario video was as good as it should have been? Or do you feel like you could have done an even better? Because that's a classic video. We would have ruined it. That was the perfect video. Yeah. Was Brenda the first time that you worked with Pac? No, the first single was Trapped. I remember when that came out and I was like, yo, this dude is dope. And my boy was like, you just like him because he's in Juice. Oh, and shit. I was like, nah, bro, this has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. Listen to him. Check him out. Yeah, man, Trap was my Brenda's Got a Baby was basically a movie in and of itself. Yeah, it was like... Yeah, long verse. I remember at the time, I used to pick him up at Burbank Airport, and he would always put his tapes in. And I was like, why is he doubling and tripling his voice? It was hectic. I just remember going, he doesn't appreciate his voice yet. Hmm. You know, on that first album, he hadn't found his voice. Brenda's Got a Baby was that rare jewel that stuck out where you're like, wow, this is, to this day, who in hip-hop makes records like that, you know? Doesn't mm -hmm. happen. Yep. When you were making Menace, what was the scene like at that time? Because right now, you know, it's all about inclusion and making sure that things are diverse and giving people chances. And I think at the time, was it impossible for a Black director, for two Black directors to get funding, actors? How did you do it. Combination of my mother's business savvy and always like putting us on game as far as like who you are and what's your unique qualities. Mm -hmm. My mother's a marketing person too. So those were always instilled in me in particular. 
as far as like knowing how to communicate with people, you know, Easy E was my first mentor before we did all those music videos. I was with Easy for the summer of 91, the last summer that Dre was in NWA. Easy taught me a lot about theme, concept. Again, what is special about you? Why is this different? What are you saying type thing, you know? And I learned that through osmosis. He wasn't like taking me through courses or anything like that, you know, but yeah. I sat with him every day. At the time, you got Juice, right? Before that, I think it was New Jack City. After Juice was Boys in the Hood. So these things were happening, but you had to figure out what was going on. Hip hop was responsible for all of it at the end of the day, because that music, that culture was why these movies were getting made. There was an audience for it. You know, I said all that about my mother and easy because you still had to figure out. It was no coincidence that we had baseball caps on and whatever hip hop garb we had on and figure out, okay, not the Hughes twins, the Hughes brother. Like you had to figure all that stuff out and gang culture is what's fascinating right now. And how do we traffic in the statements we want to make? Because we never believed in messages. Some of those other films had messages. We believed in, like, we're making a statement. And you react the way you react. And that was the difference between our film and Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood was more an academic film in that way, meaning it was well thought through and thought out as far as the beats and the structure and the stories and the characters. I think Menace more was purely born out of hip-hop. It had that energy. It had that visceral passion and recklessness as well. That snuck in there. Hmm. I'm not going to say that new line cinema knew. What they were getting? <laughs> no. The reason why we got away with Menace, no one knows, is they had a film called Who's the Man with all hip-hop. Oh, with Dr. The, Dre and Ed, Ed Lover. Yeah, Ed Lover. And they had all the hip-hop cameos. So New Line was so focused on that movie, they didn't pay attention to us. And that's how Menace got wow. through. Yeah. You gave... Jada Pinkett, her first feature film role. Mm -hmm. What did you see in her? I remember me and the writer, Tiger Williams, were writing the script, and there was a different world was on. Mm. And I just remember going, man, look at her. I didn't know who she was. But I just remember how her strength, mm -hmm. her yeah. strength, you know. And, and I knew that we needed that in the center of the film. We need a female. That particular woman in, in this script, Ronnie, had to have that coming from within. And that maternal side, but that tough side and that sweet side. And she just had it. She didn't want to read for the part. She didn't even want the part. So she agreed to take a general meeting, but wasn't going to do the film. It was am I'm amazing. I'm glad she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing I mean, casting all I the mean, way I mean, I still feel like there could be a part two. There's like Kane, he survived. Everybody survives the shootout. And Old Dog is just coming home. They tried that. There was a discussion with New Line of 10 years ago. Old Dog would have been a juvenile. So technically, you oh. probably would be eligible for parole. I didn't really want to do it. Everyone was into it, but me and my brother. But we did a treatment and the whole thing and him getting out of prison. And yeah. I was like, this just feels wrong, you know. I would love a part two, but you know. Isn't there like a belly part two or something? We're not like... going to go there now. <laughs> okay, so the scene in the beginning with the store, the Asian people there mm -hmm. and the black guys, was that inspired by... True events? 100%. Yeah. Not only in the L.A. area, the famous story of the young girl getting shot in the Natasha liquor store. Natasha Harlan's. Yep. Yeah. But in our neighborhood, there was always a Korean market, you know. And there's one in particular that every year, whether it was the Korean family that had to shoot someone or someone from the community had to shoot someone in their family, every few years there was a casualty. And <laughs> that was in our neighborhood. We saw this. These people were like our family, but there were certain aspects of the hood that 
would come in there and it would be a shootout. A lot of the urban areas in Los Angeles County, there was this dynamic happening, you know, and so it hit home. It's something that was definitely, when you have perspective and you can look back and see like, oh, it's just people of color being pitted against each other by a larger power. In New York, it was happening. It might not have been black and Korean. It might have been black and Middle Eastern Mm -hmm. or, you know, but it's still happening today. I mean, look at what they're in there buying in the scene. They're in there buying 40 ounces. You know, like, no good is coming of that. Everyone's losing. Yeah. We were at a private vinyl night with... Yeah. What does that mean? What's a private... It was like a vinyl Wednesday. So we get invited to a good man's home. And there's a vinyl room in the home. There's records. Records, man. Old records, new mm-hmm. records, art on the wall, new art, mm-hmm. fly stuff, and an incredible group of people from all type of stuff. Yeah, my man that did the movie The Warriors there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he did The Warriors. Yeah. And then you have, I'm sitting next to Danny DeVito. Yeah. yeah. This sounds so fun. And Dre's there, and you're there, and a couple of other Political cool commentator people. from CNN is there. And yes. the sole purpose is to hang out and listen to... It's Records. a guy's night of vinyl. Okay. Oh, that's the only plus and minus. There's no females. It's a plus and there's a minus to that. But. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. The old boys club. Patriarchy. And, and Nas, I, I got to tell you, that night, because I go most Wednesdays, and it's always different people, financial people, uh-huh. pop culture people, music people, movie people. That night in particular was really dynamic because we have dinner afterwards. Yeah. And there was a political conversation. Hmm. And I just remember I was... Sit in the middle of nowhere, I said, I'm really digging Nas's disposition in this whole thing. You and Snoop have similar qualities in that you guys are really good at taking in a room and not having to assert. It was getting aggressive, you know. Um, it was yeah. money talk. Yeah. And Nas, the whole night, your album was number one at the time. This is only a few months ago. Yeah. And we played Illmatic that night with other classic records from the 60s and 70s and yeah. 80s. And he's always been remarkably humble. But I just remember, again, I'm empathic, so I'm just tuning into, like, mm-hmm. that energy. And I go, now, this is unusual in these rooms. It's unusual for an artist. It's unusual for someone famous to be that comfortable in their skin. Hmm. That in the a whole room night, of alphas. Oh, my God. To just absorb as opposed to feel like you have to. The whole night he was like that. Huh. At dinner, when it got really hot and heavy, I was actually curious <laughs> what was on your mind. Was what so was slow. on your mind? He was We're... so laid back, you know. I think you asked me. I did, yeah. I was observing. I'm taking in. I'm hearing things on the money side that I was learning from. Oh, interesting. I was hearing things like words like billions being thrown around by people who had it (laughs) and why they support this person and why they support that person and who they think can win. It could be the next president. Information and stuff I didn't know. So I was just happy to soak it all up. I also noticed that night, he's right because that's the interesting thing about this room. There are white men in there, and there are black men, and there are other people of color as well. But like most time, it's white men, and they're the type to talk about like the money, money. and the government and the yeah. whole thing. But I notice also like, and me and him have been out. You mm-hmm. asked when we met. We met over our love of wine. Yeah. And I noticed that night too. I saw one glass of wine, and he was nursing the water, which was interesting. And I go, oh, he's nursing the water right now, like. Because he was just present. Yeah. He wasn't like doing what we normally all do, which is 
just another glass of wine, another glass of wine. I noticed one glass of wine at dinner, and he was on the water, which just, again, I wasn't thinking about it. I'm not conscious of it. I'm just, I'm yeah. clocking every process and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's that we an don't observer. Have. But that's what I clocked about him as I go, he's taking this in. Yeah. You know, he's really listening to these details. Mm. And most of us aren't listening to anything. But their own voice. But their own voice. Yeah. yeah. And vinyl. <laughs> well, I think that I would I would hope that that's the minimum requirement for this type of gathering that you have to actually know and love music to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone picks out a piece of Oh, a interesting. Okay. So yeah, you yeah. play this wondering. and you yeah, play. Yeah. And there's a list that goes around. So if you don't see the record laid out, yeah. you can find it. That's right. You know what I mean? And then play it. What did you play? I think I, I chose some Sam Cooke with Lou Rawls in the background. Nice. What's the name? Bring It On Home to Me. Yeah. I played that. Yeah. They were playing some serious black records, though. Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah. They that were night, playing they some were. blues, some rock, some... It was dope. That was a great night. Yeah. That was a great night. I love that. And everyone does at these things, they do have a love for music, even yeah. if they come from the financial side. Yeah. yeah. They go on about Rolling Stones and their favorite role. Whatever it is, they're there to, to listen to the record. You know? One of the right. most amazing things to really think about, though, is that the power of hip-hop is so great that, let's say, if that same vinyl night happens in 20 years, mm -hmm. no matter what color or creed or background that person has, all those people in that room are going to choose a hip-hop record because oh, yeah. that's how powerful it is. Hip-hop has the ability that no other genre has in all the arts, I think, to swallow up anything in its path and adopt it in and take it in, chop and screw it the way it wants to. You know, yeah. whether it's country, pop, rock, blues, you know, you go in jazz, hip-hop can consume it all and do its own thing with it. Now I'm laying in the hospital bed Thinking about the punk motherfuckers And my eyes is bloodshot red Gia motherfuckers, I ain't finished Be on the lookout for the straight up menace Gia This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Your mom bought you, you and your brother. This story is crazy because I asked my mom for, may she rest in peace. I said, listen, I need a video camera. She looked at me like I had four heads. Really? But she also looked at me like I understand. Mm -hmm. One day. And I was scared because if I had got that camera, that would be my life. I wouldn't wow. even thought about anything else. I probably would not even be here as a music guy. What year was this? You remember? This was 80. 
280. Oh, wow. Wow. When they first Uh, just came out to the consumer. Is that when it came out? Like when you could first get at it? Yeah. Really 84, but 82, you can find them. You can find them. So maybe it was, yeah, around around that time. Yeah, you're right. Why did you want a camcorder? I I love movies. I love Grease. Yeah. I loved Happy Days. Yeah. So I went to the movies to see, you know, 42nd Street. You could watch 10 movies in one night. They had like a 30-minute thing. And Bruce Lee is, when he played the uh, Hornet. Oh, the Green Hornet. The Green yeah. Hornet. yeah, the Green Hornet television show, yeah. I never saw that until I went to the movie theater. Hmm. So I had this fascination for movies. Tell us about that, man. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, you all, did get the camera. Yeah, first of all, when you talk about the camera, you're right. It's 82 was the first time you can go to a video store, and they might have one in the case you can rent, a camera. I don't know how it was in the boroughs in New York, yeah. but we had mom-and-pop video stores here in California. And if you were lucky, they had a camera in the case that you can rent for 24 hours, 48 hours, oh, plug wow. it into your VCR and start shooting stuff. We came to California from Detroit wanting to be in the movies. We thought we were going to be, me and my brother thought we were going to be in front of the cameras. But these noses and lack of talent was devastating once we found that out the hard way. From Detroit? From Detroit. We were coming out west to be in Hollywood, just like some, you know, yokel jokers. Like, we had these fantasies. My mom was in on it, too. We were cute little twins, afros, line up some Oscar Mayer commercials, which we tried. Mm -hmm. And we were horrible. So (laughs) (laughs) we had to go start living a regular life here in California, we used to be obsessed with Entertainment Tonight because it always had the behind the scenes. In the yeah. early 80s, that was revolutionary to see behind the scenes. Yeah. Now it's like everything. Right. We wanted this camera. We said, will you rent this camera for us for 24 hours? And she rented this camera for us. And this is like as crack is coming into the neighborhoods. Like it hasn't yeah. hit hardcore yet. Instead of doing what other kids did, which is like make little BMX videos or skateboard videos, we from Jump were making movies or recreations of our favorite shows like In Search of with Leonard Nimoy, one of wow. our favorite shows. We were wow. doing uh, Johnny Carson shows like skits. We were doing sci-fi things like for 24 hours, we didn't go to sleep. My mom's like, oh shit, this is something going on here. Mm-hmm. Then what happened was a year later, Crackhead come in and our friends we had the Adidas suits and the gold chains, and everyone was getting distracted by that, even though we were only 12, 13 at the time. And my mom was becoming, finally, from welfare, she's becoming a successful businesswoman. And she bought a camera, and she tricked us. She says, this is my camera for my company, but I'll let you guys use it. Mm, smart. Yeah. I didn't know why she did it, but it was, because we never felt like we had possession of it. It was her way of, like, making us earn it, I guess. And, right. and I remember one of the first things we did was a documentary on a crack dealer. And we were 13 when we got the camera in the house, ownership of it. The films were getting more and more like the productions were, we'd do shootouts, we'd do squibs, we'd do explosives. It was just getting insane, the level of stuff we were trying to pull off. We almost burnt the house down because of these (laughs) M80s we were doing. We were making Scarface over and over and over again. We had mounds of flour. There was dough coming out of our nose because we were doing snort scenes and we were remaking Rocky Three. It just took off from there, you know? She knew, though. She saw. She goes, if I don't give them this. And then she started investing in equipment after that. Because right outside the door was the allure of the dope dealing and all that stuff. And she just knew, you know. I got to give them something to really latch on to. So nothing else can take them. Yep. What about your dad? My dad was a a Rolling Stone, you know. (laughs) 
album was from the stuff. So yeah, yeah he's he's actually a singer, but you know, he dabbled in the pimptorial arts as well. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you know, like wow. my dad was a street dude, good guy. American pimp was inspired by your dad in some it's ways, so funny. of course, right? Nah, you say that because people when it came out, this documentary that you're lucky if you could find it, right? <laughs> said, is this about your father? You guys exploring your father? It was actually a reaction to our mother because my mother was such a radical feminist that she always taught us to put women on pedestals. So we were always very shy around women. And we did. We got our hearts broke a lot because we put women on. And I think that was our way of going, wait a minute now. People are people. Everyone's got to, let's treat each case as it is. But we dove into that documentary and literally lived with pimps for three years and I remember one of the pimps at one point says, let me ask you guys something. Like a year in, he goes, how are your relationships doing right now? Because, you know, fine when squares hang out with pimps, gets a little rough at home. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and he was right. Me and my brother both were having like friction with our girls. Because you were absorbing the pimp energy and like starting to be like. Yeah. You looked at me. You chose me. <laughs> Just like, you know, the thing I loved about them, I'm not going to condemn or condone, yeah. or, you know, like pimping because there's different options for different peoples. You know, I found that most of those guys could have been incredible attorneys or preachers. That was the thing they had. You know, you never knew what hand they got dealt. So I'm not going to judge them on that. But I will say that I learned self-possession which is an extension of what my mother taught me, not self-obsession, but like being possessed of like, I feel this and I'm going to stand on this. And no one's going to move me off of how I feel about this. And I'm going to stand on what I'm saying. I'm going to tell you how I feel about this. That's what they gave us, especially when it came to dealing with women and being honest. I learned a lot of the best pimps in that film. A lot of them weren't even in the film. They were just straight up honest and it was brutal, but it came with charisma so it didn't, you, you learned it though. I was like, oh, this guy is successful because he's got charisma, charm, but he's just very frank about what it is, you know? I wonder whether you ever felt some reservations about the topic because along with self-possession, it's like possessing another oh, person. Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt. Did it conflict with like the yeah. way that you were raised and did you try to like push back on them and say like, you should really not. Never pushed back on the pimps, but there was a conflict of the way I was raised. And I remember it premiered in Sundance. And my mother uh, came with a bunch of her lesbian friends who she's, mm -hmm. my mother's a lesbian, so <laughs> follows that she bring her Yeah, and they're homies. Yeah. yeah, and they're feminist lesbians, like 12 of them in the theater. And I was more nervous than I ever could be, yeah. you know, my mom watching this film. When the lights came up and we got outside, she says, no, no, I get it. Listen. If their bottom line is money, it all made sense to me. Because my mother's also capitalist. She's a businesswoman. She's like, if the bottom line is money, a lot of that made sense to me. I'm trying to figure out who I would have over for dinner, is what she said. I'm like, oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> oh, shit. So wow. for anyone to be, I think, successful, you have to be able to compartmentalize certain things, you know? What do you think about what the movies that come out now? Black film. <sighs> Well, you know, it's a great time for black content, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like streaming, television. It's all starting to be one thing now. And it's really, there's a lot of different voices out here. My biggest problem is what our problem was then. And I got a lot of problems with dead presidents because of it. You know, we were young and we didn't have some of the G's in the game that took us under their wing and would mentor us. And I particularly mean some of our white brothers and sisters in the business 
that could help us, as they say, scale mm. and learn the things that would make a better story or make a better ending or make it better this or better that. And that's my only hope now is, you know, there's all these opportunities for people of color now, but I think it's incumbent upon the people who are G's in the business and not the people of color. I'm talking about the Jewish brothers and sisters, the white brothers and sisters that put you on game because they got a hundred and something years of it, yeah. you know, that, that we just didn't have. And I'm going on 50 next year. And the only thing I get a little mixed up about is I go, man, none of those people took us under their wing. None of them mentored us. And we were pop off at the time too. Tupac wasn't the only one talking shit in the media. Like we got in a lot of trouble and, you know, fatherless boys too, you know, usually your father's there to say, you need to keep your mouth shut. Mm. And that that's what you look for in that. And um, I feel that it's a tremendous time in, in film and I say content again, cause it's all starting to whatever, but in order to get to the level that we all need to get to, the information and the knowledge needs to be shared. And that's what's missing from the approach. Is it truly giving somebody an opportunity if you just open the door, push them through it and close it, and then you walk away? Like you have to also show them around. What's that thing about teaching someone to fish? You know, some of those rooms we talked about earlier, whether it's the vinyl night or other rooms like that, that I'm privy to now, and I know you are, like, when you get in these rooms now and you see the way things really operate, you thought you were in control, and there's all kinds of shit operating. That's what I'm talking about as well. Like, they're not putting the culture up on the real game. And I never peeped that whole information. People talk about information. I was like, whatever. But no, information, knowledge, game, not just how to set a camera up and shoot it and roll sound. Oh, yeah. Like everything that goes in and around this whole thing. But that's just the way we come up in yeah. America. We come up like, you're on your own. Yep. You're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if you make it. Don't, don't you think, though, in some ways that a lot of folks that are getting opportunities now, do you think that they're even open? Sometimes creatives are not even open to someone older telling them, you know what? The ending of your film doesn't work. You're right about that. A lot of people are insecure and closed off. And that's a big problem as well. Yeah. As people, you know, let alone as artists. And the quickest death you're going to have as a human being or as an artist is to be that insecure and that insulated and that closed off because that means you're going to die on your first record or on right. your first film. And you might not get another you're one. You're not going to get another one. And, and you know what? You asshole yourself out of the business, yeah. which happens a lot. Happens you know? a lot. You're now working on a Tupac documentary that you worked on with his mom. Yeah, and I didn't want to do it either. You know, I was doing my Marvin Gaye biopic. Dr. Dre is producing it with me. Jimmy Iovine's involved in it and producing as well. And That's I was insane. Yeah, that insane. was the thing. That was the thing. That you know, like, always wanted to do? I've wanted to do that since I was 16. So, wow. you know, Dre knew that. And Dre came to me after we finished The Fine Ones. He's like, now that we're like done with the you're the subject and I'm the filmmaker thing. We can actually go to work, you know? And he goes, I'm down to produce this and put my money where my mouth is. And boy, did he. We didn't have to go to a studio. like. And then Jimmy got involved and we developed this without any interference. And that was the goal, my life's ambition, also as a black filmmaker going, making sure that deal was structured right, the resources were there, the marketing dollars were there, the whole thing because of the end where I feel we need to take film. You know, yeah. and I'm going to go to Tupac, but I also am like, I'm going to go sit down with that director and that director and that producer and pick their brain about how they, because I'm maybe at 22, I wasn't as knowledgeable about like the science that I need to figure out how to 
get that film to be the piece of art that it needs to be and not just be, oh, that's a cool black film or it's a cool right. biopic. Right. That's fantastic. I hate when people say it in a bit. That's fantastic. I saw the new film. It's fantastic. <laughs> I ate it. I shitted it out. I'm done. It has to, it has to really affect you. Yeah. And when I think about black film and filmmakers and storytellers, I pause that for a second. I go, well, I'm obsessed with music stories, especially black music stories. They're so complex and compelling and profane and profound. Some of the best stories are in black music. Some of the best stories, you know, that have not even began to be told yet. So my focus was on Marvin Gaye. And then here comes the Tupac estate. They had a scenario with another filmmaker that had fell apart and they wanted me to do this documentary. It wasn't what it is now. And I was like, that was the first time I was mature enough to go, this is on a Wednesday. I go, you know what? Give me three days. I don't think I want to do this. I don't think I can do this, you know? But let me think about it. And I thought about it. And I thought about what I connected in the story. And that's my way. And I go, you know what? If I can do like five parts on him and his mother. And by the way, he's the star. Don't get it twisted. Like it is a Tupac comprehensive biopic documentary series. But it's like the Godfather 2 in that way where you go back. You keep going back, and you mm. see the foundation. Yeah. You see what who she is and She's what made very him interesting. Oh like. my god, oh my god! So that was my end. Being raised by a single activist mother, I'm, and when I connected with Tupac, there was this underlying thing that, for lack of a better word, in the first time I connected to him, that we had these daddy issues. It wasn't said. You just find your own. You could feel it. And when you look at Tupac, and I'm gonna say something that's maybe profane, but the way he died, that was one big daddy issue. The, mm. the whole run was a daddy issue. I connect to that. Searching for that figure, whether it was in Suge or this guy, that guy, he was always searching for that. that yeah, if, yeah, even if you think about that final image. That's right. On the strip. Haunting that image. I mean, yeah. that is such a father-son, very dysfunctional, dynamic photo. You a thousand it. words in one image. There's a famous story now. Snoop has told it a few times, the confrontation in Central Park with Nas and Tupac. Was it Central Park, am I correct? Bryant Park. Bryant Park. Yeah. And I won't get into it. People can go run it down. But the other thing I was fascinated with Tupac, and I find inspiring if you do it the right way, is, and everyone in the narrative talks about it, he's an artist. And artists are, by nature, delusional. You have to be. These are all delusions first. And you turn your delusions into realities if you're a great artist but Tupac was not street savvy that's just not who he was he's a performing arts kid not that he wasn't from around the streets and in the streets whatever but by nature he's an artist and that story that I'm glad that Snoop articulated they've gotten your side of it you go there was a confrontation but the way Nas was dealing with it was with love and it was kind but with Tupac and Tupac's blah, 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 blah. He didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't read that he was surrounded because he was in his feelings and he was in that movie in his head, (laughs) you know? So we get into the artist versus street guys. You know, we get into all that stuff, you know? That's heavy. That's heavy. It'll be good for kids to see today. That's right. A lot of kids are just, all they know is the street. And a lot of people have daddy issues. That's right. You know, sure. which goes into a whole nother conversation about the black family and That's right. yeah. what came in to infiltrate and what spread it, what broke it up. And our responsibilities also as right. dads 
and mothers. Yeah. Those are perfect projects yeah. for you. We cannot wait yeah. for both of them. Oh, thank you. Well, you look very healthy, very LA yeah. lifestyle healthy. <laughs> well, thank you. Very stress free. Yeah. I got this Japanese cold plunge outside my big bubble sauna. You know, usually that gets me right. <laughs> that is some LA shit. That's some surfer boy, white boy shit, but I seen that in New York. Tell me, what is the science behind like jumping into a horrible it, cold? Let me tell bath. you, I was depressed like three months ago. I didn't know I was depressed because when you get in cold water, it does something to your central nervous system. Rick Rubin put me on this game. He says, if you start your day like this, 39 degrees, 40 degrees, whatever, there's nothing in your day that can stress you out because you've already been assaulted. So you're just like a Zen master the rest of the day. So I was depressed like two months ago. And the only reason I, could, I knew I was depressed because everything, the possibility of things, I got a little tired. I'm like, shit, hmm. I, you know. But I was all joyful and skin was looking great. Because it gets your attitude right. It makes you happy. It burns more fat in three, four minutes than jogging for an hour. So I did it gets not you, know that. It gets you right, you know. Kills inflammation on the spot. I got little back issues. Getting there, it's a wrap. How long you stay in there? I stay in 45 degrees for over three minutes, like three minutes. Are you screaming? No, no. You have to keep lowering it, the degrees, because if you can think about your life, it's not cold enough. So that's how you know. Uh, <laughs> wow. that's a, it's a meditation, basically. You know, it's a game changer, though. I'm down with new things. You know, <laughs> I might try it. Thanks, man. Thanks for telling me. See, that's Thanks really hip hop too. Man. Like, I might try it. Yeah. <laughs> but the follow up is like, did you try it? That's what we have to. We have to get on him at like. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. This is also about hip hop and fifty turning yeah. fifty, whatever. And as we mature, and as the music matures. And hip-hop is going into a place that, that rock has been, but we haven't been. You have to try new things because your body is changing. <laughs> Everything's changing, so you have to adjust. Monthly, yearly, I always tell people, like, what it is you're eating, what your health regimen is, whether you're doing hydrotherapy or sauna, whatever it is, yoga. You have to start changing or you're going to look 85 years old Yeah, at 45. <laughs> and we look back like... 50 years ago, there were some people at 50, they looked 85. They didn't have the game. They didn't have the science. And now we know more. Right. And I bring hip-hop turning 50 because now we're seeing performances in people at 50 yep. that haven't lost a step. We didn't know it was possible. You right. know, but right. they had to change things in their personal lives, I'm sure, that you can't just be Hennessy, weed, chicken wings. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. That's been an ongoing That's thing, That's like though. my life right there. <laughs> Thank you for sharing so many things, like being very Word. open about, you know. Family upbringing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. I hope my mom doesn't. Okay, yeah, she's cool. On the next episode of The Bridge, we talk to MC Shah Rock and Grandmaster Cass. When the song came out, people in our area who knew hip-hop was like, yo, Cass, you made a record. <laughs> you made, I heard your record on the radio. I said, I ain't got no record. What you talking about? Yes, you did. I heard it on the radio, got your name in it, and all that shit. I was like, nah, that ain't me. That's Hank. It was like, Hank? Ain't no rap. From Spotify, the executive producers are Gina Delvac 
and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. From Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana. And associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening.